welcome back to the podcast series all about life at Chawton House with me, Lizzie Frisby. Based in the tiny village of Chawton in Hampshire is the once home to Edward Knight, brother of the world-famous writer, best known for her novel Pride and Prejudice, Jane Austen. With so much going on all year round, I want to keep you informed of what is going on, chatting to curators, volunteers, gardeners, guest speakers and more. In this episode, you'll hear from curator and collections manager Emma Yandel and visitor experience manager Louisa Carpenter, who have been working on the rehang. We'll find out about this ongoing project going on inside Chawton House, reorganising the various portraits on display. Would one of you be able to explain what we are talking about when we talk about the rehang? So it's kind of our shorthand for a project that we um, did. We sort of started at the end of last year and then completed just before our reopening in March this year. Sadly, that was closed quite quickly after, but it will be still there for when we reopen again. So what we mean by rehang is we basically looked at the story that we tell our visitors as they walk around the house. um, And we felt that where a lot of the paintings were and the furniture was and the the boards that that people read, um, we felt that the story wasn't very cohesive for them because the organisation's history is that it was set up as an academic research library on early women's writing. So there were sort of big tables in every room um, for people to look at books. um, And the paintings were really there for sort of set dressing, if you will, to make it feel like the country house that it is. But they weren't necessarily hung in a way that would tell a story. So we looked at this sort of from the scratch and we thought, well, what is the story that we do tell visitors as they come to the house uh, verbally or through tours? And how can we reflect that with what they're seeing on the walls? Um, So we call it a rehang because it largely involved moving a lot of paintings around um so that was quite a complex thing but i wish i'd counted how many paintings it was but it was an astonishing amount of paintings that we had to move around and what we did was sort of create a narrative which starts with talking about the building itself and the family that are connected to the building so the knight family and then moving up through into exhibition space and then eventually talking about the women writers in our collection in our new women writers galleries Fabulous. And then are the paintings all Chawton House owned or? We have a number of collections. So we have our core collection, which is um, owned by Chawton House and it encompasses uh, literature. We have a really large collection of early women's writers, sorry, uh, writing. So we have a really big book and manuscript collection. And then we have furniture, we have paintings of our own, but then we're also very lucky to have a large collection on loan from Richard Knight, and that is what we refer to internally as the Knight Collection, um, because it is the um, it includes paintings, furniture, and books that were owned by the Knight family over the centuries, and many of them have for decades, uh, some for more than that, hung in Chawton House or um, been in the library of Chawton House. So we're really privileged to not only have our own collection where we can really talk about early women writers that were inspired by Jane Austen or sort of laid the groundwork for her work, um, but also that we can talk about the history of the house and have paintings of uh, former ancestors of the Knight family and owners of the house, uh, as well as things like uh, we've got a 17th century settle on loan, which is sort of a carved uh, wooden, I guess you'd think of it as a bench in colloquial terms, 
that we know has been in Chawton House for a really significant period of time. So that was one of the lovely things about the rehang, being able to unite in the story we tell that Louisa mentioned, the objects that uh, we brought in when we set up Chawton House as a, a centre for early women's writing, but also objects that have been in the house for decades and have a real history attached to this location. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. A great variety of things that you must have come across. And can you explain briefly how you go about the whole rehang process? So so I guess there's two things to think about. There's the story we want to tell and the story we do tell already verbally, as I said. Um, But there's what objects and paintings have we got and how can we make them fit with that story? A lot of the women writers and paintings of women in general were bought at auction by Sandy Lerner, our initial financial benefactor, to make a kind of set dress for the library. So they weren't necessarily bought with the intention to create a story. Shoehorning that into a story was a little tricky at times. So the first sort of practical thing to do was to capture everything that we have and bring that all into a document so I could look at what was there and where were the correlations between the paintings that we could maybe bring out different stories with. So the Knight family was easier in a way because it's sort of chronological and you can talk about the different um, squires of the manor and, and people who've been involved with the with the estate over time. Um, but the women writers, we sort of wanted to make a narrative which told people about who these women were and what kinds of writing they were doing and what they were writing about. So being able to kind of list out all the paintings of women writers that we had and then kind of theming them by, by the types of writing they did and what they were writing about meant that we were able to kind of create categories. And from that, I did a sort of floor plan that mapped out different areas of the building and what that area might might talk about. So in our long gallery of women writers, we've got a section on novelists, we've got a section on travel writing, and we talk about campaigners as well. So it it turned out that looking at our painting list, we had three different women who all wrote um, in some shape or form for the anti-slavery movement, and that was fascinating to me. So I felt that that had to be included. It threw up surprises. And it was a fascinating process, really. We were quite lucky because we've got about 80 volunteers here all doing different things. But some of them had done a lot of research. One in particular who I have to name is Martin Caddick. He'd done a lot of research on the collection and the Knight family story already. So we have a sort of working subgroup with Martin, Emma and I. And uh, we were able to sort of shape the story through walking through the building and thinking about what visitors want to see and what, um, what questions they might have. Brilliant. And did you come across many paintings which seemed almost like you didn't know anything about them or where they'd come from at all? Yes, <laughs> there was quite a lot of that. What was, what was really an amazing outcome of the work that Louisa was just talking about was seeing how many connections there are between the paintings that, as she said, weren't necessarily collected to tell this unified story of women in the arts and women novelists. Uh, but actually, when you bring them together and you research them, you see these amazing connections between them, which highlight narratives that we didn't know necessarily that we would be able to tell. So we have a painting of Lady Mary Wardley Montague, who was a very well-known 18th century writer, particularly she wrote these famous letters from her time when she was in the then Ottoman Empire, uh, which was sort of some of the earliest travel writing and was a huge sensation when it was published. Um, But we have a painting of her, but we also have a painting of a um, a young woman called Ella Navani, who previously these paintings weren't displayed anywhere near each other in the house. 
And the story we were telling about Alan Avani was that she was quite prodigious at a young age and she wrote poetry, but she had this very ill-fated marriage uh, to a much older man and she died within sort of, I think it's 11 weeks of, of the date of the marriage. And it was quite a big scandal because of the age difference and the proximity after her birth. And there were quite sort of unpleasant things suggested about the uh, links between her death and the role of her new husband. But actually what we discovered was that Lady Mary Walkley Montague was so taken by the story of the death of Alan Lavani that along with another writer, they both wrote poetry talking about her death. And so actually what we've been able to do is display the portraits of Alan Lavani and, and Lady Mary Walkley Montague together. And then uh, Louisa had a, a lovely innovation of including a facsimile of the poem that Lady Mary wrote about Eleanor. So we sort of have this mini narrative together where we can link very literally the, the lives of the women, the, the portraits we have of them, and then the literature that they created, which is obviously a huge part of why we exist and what we try to do. So that was one of the sort of unexpected connections that came out through the research of the Rehang. But we also, maybe Louise, you could talk about our, our painting of Mary Wollstonecraft or, or, yeah. or not Mary Wollstonecraft. <laughs> It was quite early on in the project and we had an intern with us called Yvonne who was with us from Germany for a couple of months so we gave her this research project of something she could get her teeth stuck into and poor thing, the first few paintings that she looked at, it was all, there was just so many mysteries were coming up more than answers. Um, I think it was an interesting process for her, I hope it was. Um, but one of the, one of the main mysteries was this painting that we have, or we had hanging in a room that wasn't on the public route. Um, so we hadn't really looked at it very much, or I hadn't, um, I'd only been there a year at that point, so I hadn't really had time to think about that sort of thing. Um, so Yvonne started looking at this painting, um, and, uh, found out that there's actually um, a caption on it. It was sold to us at auction as a painting of Mary Godwin, authoress. Um, Mary Godwin, of course, is the married name of Mary Wollstonecraft, so we suddenly got very excited. Um, we actually, at that point, had a display in the library called Writing Women's Rights, which was um, all about early feminist texts, and we had our first edition of, of Wollstonecraft's Vindication of the Rights of Women on display, so it all felt very... Um, symbiotic and we were very excited that you know how could we not know we had a portrait of Wollstonecraft here all along um <laughs> but the problem was that it, it didn't really look like the um the existing or known portraits of, of Wollstonecraft and so the more she looked into it the more sort of problems were coming up really because there's a caption on the front that says Mary Godwin Authoress 1792 which you can only see if you shine a torch on it so that was another exciting find on the back it's referenced as being by one artist but it was sold to us as being by another artist but basically the artist that it was sold to us as being by from the auction house um, died quite a long time before Mary Wollstonecraft was born oh. <laughs> so that threw up another mystery um, and then we sort of all got a bit into detecting what, what was this painting and looking at the the way it was painted and thinking about her hands because her hands weren't painted as well as the face although that's a common thing from paintings of that of that period because um the masters would often get their apprentices to, to do the hands but there's a strange lump on what what we thought was her ring finger where it looks like it's been painted over so then of course we're hypothesizing oh did mary what are they trying to make it look like mary wollstonecraft because she famously didn't wear a wedding ring um so basically mystery after mystery and we sent the image to a costume expert at the vna and they came back 
and told us that because she's wearing quite a distinctive sort of mop cap it makes her look a little bit like a kind of old washerwoman but it's actually a fashion item from a very specific part of the 18th century um, and they came back and said it was a 1780s um, mop cap so it couldn't possibly have been painted by George Bear which is the artist it was attributed to. So the mystery continues really but we felt that it was such a sort of interesting story it really gripped all of us that we thought why not tell that story to visitors even though you know it is a mystery but there is something that tells you about women in that time I think from the fact that we don't really know who who she is and there are other paintings of women in our collection who are anonymous and that's because you know women were sort of just not seen as remarkable enough to to be documented as much so our our main focus is on the writing that women did and and obviously through this painting of Mary Wollstonecraft as she isn't she we can tell the story of Mary Wollstonecraft but we can also tell the story of anonymous women who were not given a voice and and that's really the same with Eleanor Verney who um Emma mentioned because she actually did write um, a journal but she's not known for her writing but her story tells you so much about the position of women in that time because of her marriage and the restrictions that that put on her life and and her choices through life. Did you find that portraits of females are a lot there's a lot less known about them than portraits of males? Yes, so just to give some background, um, I joined as the curator of Chawton House in December of last year, 2019, and prior to that, like Louisa said, the portrait collection and the furniture collection and other objects were, the information we had to go on was limited because there wasn't someone doing the role that sort of is, is my role now of sort of making sure that they've been fully researched. But one of the really interesting things was going through and looking at how paintings were originally sold to us and the number of ones that are the information we have is portrait of a lady um and that is just the standard title that's given to an artwork um when we don't know who who it's painted and of course there are portrait of a gentleman or portrait of a young boy but you frequently find when you're looking at these artworks that um there just seems to be, there's quite a high degree of tentativeness around attribution. So we have artworks where there have, um, we have a painting of Kitty Clive, who was um, was actress and soprano. Um, And if you look on the back of the painting, there are lots of labels dating, you know, I think the earliest one was 1901 or 1906, um, which often put on the back of paintings when they've gone to a different uh, sales outfit or gone to an auction and it's been long thought to uh, depict Kitty Clive but there's not a willingness to say yes this is definitely definitely this person and that lack of really ironclad provenance which is the word we use for when you can really trace back the history of a painting from where it is today through its its past owners back to the artist who created it. That lack of strong provenance is something that I personally, from my experience, have found to be more of an issue when you're looking at paintings of women because often paintings of men, um, there would be a, unless it's sort of an upper-class woman where maybe she has a title, so she's the Duchess of X or she's Lady X, uh, where it's more likely that an identity has been held alongside the portrait. Um, with men, it tends to be their rank or their achievements or there's more of a record of the things they have done that have made them notable to later generations. And because women just weren't able to take on those roles, 
to the same degree, or if when, when they did, it just wasn't deemed as important to record. You do definitely struggle with trying to firmly ascertain who a painting is of, and that obviously is an impediment to sort of the stories that you can use it to tell, and something that we've really tried through the research that Louisa mentioned to overcome. It sounds like you had to talk to a lot of different people, sort of gather the knowledge together, is that right? Yeah, you use the networks you've got, you you speak to people who might know, and you, you gather as much evidence as you can in order to form what you think is the most likely. It's rare that you can say something concretely, so you have to say it's most likely. <laughs> um, yeah. But it's a fascinating process. Yeah, and what's, what's another sort of lovely thing about the Rehang project is that it's not something that's now we've done it and it's finished and it's uh, you know a static thing obviously paintings have been moved and we have got this new interpretation narrative around the house which is amazing and will be there for many years to come but in terms of the research questions it's thrown up for me uh, and for sort of the volunteers that we have working on these projects a lot of that is still just at the very beginning for example like when you take a painting off the wall quite often you'll discover something on the back of it which might make you think hmm okay we, we could investigate this further. So um, as an example, we have a painting of Fanny Kemble, who is best known for a journal she wrote um, talking about the conditions on a plantation in Georgia in the United States in the late 1830s. And she was very critical of the treatment of the, the slaves on that plantation. The painting we have of her on the front, it has a sort of little title um, built into the frame which uh, attributes it to a, a follower of Thomas Lawrence, who's a very well-known and renowned 18th century artist and portraitist. But when we took it off, we saw that attached to the back of the painting, there was another sort of label of that sort, but it was clearly older from the design and the, the way that the, ha- that the label had been painted on. But on the back of that, it said, portrait of Fanny Campbell painted by the request of her family, which would then seem to be quite good provenance that this was actually a painting by Thomas Lawrence. But if you look at the painting, and if you know anything about Thomas Lawrence, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty clear that it's not of the quality that you would expect of him. But also from doing research on Fanny Campbell, um, there is a painting of her by Thomas Lawrence that was frequently engraved and then copied. But this looks quite different in many sort of key details around the face from that painting. So there's this sort of strange history of we can be pretty sure that it's not by this artist but then there's information on the back which sort of implies a much stronger link to the artist and that's things like that are things that I am going to continue to research and try and find more about and we have the flexibility of if we make sort of new exciting discoveries of being able to share those with visitors and, and add that to our interpretation which is really exciting. Following on to that, I'd say um, this was always very much phase one of this project. So um, we, as as you probably are aware, we're a charity of independent means. We don't get any public funding. So we have to do things bit by bit, and then we can start to fundraise. Um, So phase two, which is something we'll be looking at over the next year or two, will then expand on those stories that we've found and add to the galleries um, in different ways. So we'll think about how to make things more interactive or engaging. it's definitely an initial step in yeah. terms of let's get the base of the story right. Why is it, do you think, that paintings have various labels on them? Why do people try and give it as being by one person or being a picture of a particular person when it's not? 
Well, the short answer would be for commercial reasons. So if you can firmly attribute a painting either to an artist or you can identify the sitter, if that sitter in particular is someone of note, uh, so someone where they wrote something or they were involved in politics or, or they did something that has been recorded more widely in history, then it's much more likely to be of interest both to private collectors and also museums and galleries. It can be that these things are legacies that have sort of been passed down by prior owners, and it could be that someone uh, acquired a painting and they were certain that they thought it might be this person or it appeared to be this person. And then, particularly because back in the day, sort of sticker labels or um, in the case of some of the night collection that we have, we have little labels that have actually been held on with the wax seal of uh, of the owner, Montague Knight, at the time, which was rather amazing. But it could be that someone has sort of, with a little bit of imagination, made a claim that then become attached to the back of the painting. And then subsequent people have seen that and taken that at its word. And then there's sort of been a legacy of something having been long attributed to an artist or to be of a sitter. So it is this, as Louise said, it is this detective work of working out what information to take at face value and what to scrutinize and think, hmm, why why might this have been attributed to this person? Is it for a commercial reason or is it because they're, like with women's history, there's just a lack of a good record of who X person was at this time? Could there be sort of some confusion? And sometimes you do find that paintings have been misattributed and actually you'll, you'll, you'll come across. So we had a, maybe Louisa, you could um, talk about the, uh, the painting of Kitty Clive that we thought we had. Oh, wait, sorry, not Kitty Clive. I'm thinking of Kitty Fisher. Apologies. Kitty Fisher. You've got two yeah. paintings. Two, two Kitties in the collection. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we had a painting which for many years um, we labelled and w- talked about as being of Kitty Fisher, who was a courtesan, um, famously, of Charles II. So obviously that's quite a fascinating character. It's a lovely story to tell, and uh, we did enjoy telling that story until it was discovered that it wasn't Kitty Fisher. And I should say, actually, we were told when when the painting was bought, again by the auction house, that it was Kitty Fisher. So we didn't just pluck that from the air and make it up. But I think it was a visitor. uh, This is before my time as well. But someone someone saw it and and pointed out that it it looked awfully like a known painting by Frances Coates of a lady called Miss Annetta Coke Cage. And if you look for that painting, um, you can find it online. It looks exactly the same as the one we've got. So the one we've got, we think, is a copy of that painting, um, which means quite concretely it's not Kitty Fisher. (laughs) What was nice about this particular one, and this is some research that, that Martin, our volunteer, uncovered, was that, weirdly, there's a very strong link between the Coke Cage family and the Knight family who are living in Chawton House. So Miss Coke Cage, who's portrayed in the um, painting, had a son who married Edward Austin Knight's sister-in-law, Fanny Bridges. Um, so the two families were, were friends, and Fanny Cage was a friend of Fanny Knight, who's one of Jane Austen's nieces. So really strong links with the Knight family and with this house, and that is a complete and utter coincidence because it was purchased 
at auction um, at the time of when Sandy Lerner was, was doing the restoration project, and it was purchased as a notable woman of the 18th century to hang on the walls of this library, and it wasn't thought to be anything to do with the Knight family. So really strange, almost spooky coincidence, that one, yeah. but again, another lovely story to be able to tell. Yeah, and I should just quickly add that um, it was common practice for paintings to be copied by other artists, whether that was for practice or if because the painting was a really popular depiction and other people wanted to have a copy of that. So that is part of why you do find that you have multiples or very similar um, takes by different artists on the same pose and depiction of someone, which does kind of muddy the water of working out which one was the original, which one was the copy, and then that, of course, comes down to which has the, the stronger provenance in the history. But, yeah, it does mean it's rather spooky when you're, I think it was a visitor who was at a gallery in the U.S., and she looked up on the walls and was like, wait a second, I've seen yeah. that, I've seen that portrait before. Um, so, yeah, it is, it is funny how these things come out. Like Louisa said, we never would have thought that actually our misattributed painting would have so much more that we could bring out in terms of the narrative of the house. So, yeah, a happy accident, that one. Yeah, definitely. And I guess that also shows the importance it is to have as many people as possible see these paintings because anyone could add to the information of the painting. <laughs> yes, definitely. definitely. And we're always learning. We're always learning. And so, yeah, we're, you know, um, you build expertise through your through your job and working with these objects. But um, we're open to learning all the time, and that's what that's what makes it so interesting. Is that uh, you can you can be proved wrong, and we're happy to be proved wrong. <laughs> Fabulous. And I just wondered if we have time to quickly talk about the actual physical process. I think I did see you, Louisa, in the process of the rehang of actually moving the paintings. They're quite hefty things, aren't they? Yeah, so I was very <laughs> pleased that we managed to get Emma to start her role um, during the project because she brought some much-needed collections expertise and uh, another pair of hands, <laughs> if nothing else. We were really, really lucky that we were supported by an external handler who also had not only the uh, technical abilities of repositioning chain and uh, sorting out the actual physical hanging of things, because with paintings you have to make sure, obviously, particularly if something's very large and we have some paintings that are sort of over a meter um, tall you have to make sure that the way you're hanging them is counterbalancing that weight and that you're you're bearing the load properly but that's actually one of the things that is quite interesting that you don't necessarily think about unless you're involved in a project like this how do you physically take the art off the walls and like uh, Louisa said it was a bit of a jigsaw we sort of had to work out if we take this painting off the wall where are we going to put it until we have freed up the space where it's going to because we weren't in a situation of coming into a completely empty building and hanging paintings we were moving paintings quite often into position where something else is already hanging so then it becomes a process of working out the best order of doing things and then working out the number of people that you actually need to be able to hold the artwork so with a really small artwork that can just be one person but it, we got to the point I think that most people we had helping with the painting with probably three hands on the painting and then someone else helping to spot us as we sort of came around some of the the corners of, of Chawton House and then there are things like you need to wear gloves when you take paintings off the wall because the gilding on the frame you're you're much more likely to damage that um, if you're using your hands and also 
protecting yourself because sometimes paintings could have sharp edges. And then you can't just put a painting on the ground, for example, because it, it, it will have a frame that would be damaged, either sort of scraped by being put on the ground, or perhaps it might have a frame with sort of an elaborate corner so that it doesn't have a really um, flat base. We use these special foam supports so that we can put it on the ground, but we can make sure that the frame isn't being damaged. And we managed to do a pretty good job, actually, of not having to put too many paintings into storage before we were able to put them back on the walls. So we tried where possible to do direct swaps, but um, it's it's a long process. And actually, it's it's quite an exhausting process. That's what we realized. It was all, as Emma says, a bit of a jigsaw. But uh, yeah, we just had to be incredibly systematic about it. And again, we were really lucky to have the support of volunteers in terms of uh, extra pairs of hands. We had one volunteer, Bob, who was incredibly helpful. And he was saying that he hadn't particularly been interested in the in the artistic nature of, of paintings before. He sort of looked them, at them as beautiful or as showing a person. But he was so fascinated in seeing the like materiality of the painting and uh, the back of it. And it was really lovely to be able to train some of our volunteers in doing that sort of art handling. Brilliant. So lots of hard work went into that. Finally, which were your favourite paintings or findings and why? So Emma, if you'd like to start. So I'll give a slightly two-part answer. One of my favourites in terms of the uh, improvement of access and visibility of it uh, for visitors was our portrait of Mary Robinson, who was a poet and an actor, but also well known for being uh, the mistress of the Prince Regent. Um, and it's one of the most, if I'm allowed to be biased, of beautiful paintings that we have in the collection. And she's a fascinating figure. Um, but previously it was hung in our great hall um, because of the oak panelling in that room. It was really sort of high up near the ceiling and it just wasn't being done justice. And also visitors just couldn't look at it that closely. Um, but with the new sort of scheme and layout that Louisa described, we were able to move it into our oak room. And now it's lit much better. They're able to get a lot closer to it. And you can see wonderful details like the colors that were used to bring her face to life and things that you might not expect. Like uh, Louisa noted that she had sort of orangey paint around her lips, which... You, you wouldn't necessarily think would be the colour used, but it creates this beautiful impression. So that was lovely in terms of visitor access. Probably the the paintings that was most exciting for me to take off the walls were uh, ones from the Knight family collection um, because uh, Montague Knight, who was the squire of Chawton House in the late 19th century and a huge champion for the house itself in its history and the history of his family, he um, he catalogued all of the Knight family paintings and we have a copy of this catalogue in, in the Knight collection. And um, I'd sort of known that the catalogue existed and I noticed that on some of the Knight family paintings you have numbers painted on them, sort of obscurely in a corner, like a number 17, and I sort of wondered what that was doing there. But then when we got these paintings off the wall, as I sort of alluded to earlier, we saw that Monty had put labels on the back of them where he'd given them all a number and he'd written a brief summary of the sitter, information about them, and then he'd used his wax seal or sometimes sort of a nail to hold them in place. And so looking at the backs of those paintings, he'd also um, he'd also lined with a copy of the Times newspaper, which gave us a very precise date as to when he did this work. It was really sort of amazing to see, particularly because 
as a curator, that's the sort of work that I'm doing with the collection, researching into it and systematizing it. And it was it was quite remarkable to see sort of the work that he'd done over 100 years before to um, record the collection. And I was pretty impressed by his, his approach to giving everything inventory numbers. And yeah, so that was really exciting because I wasn't expecting to see that. That was a real goosebump moment for me when we yeah. when we realised that he'd catalogued everything and that, you know, even so much as the sort of newspaper he'd used to, to back the painting, uh, we could pinpoint it to the day that he did it. Um, and that's, that's always, you know, working in these historic buildings and imagining your predecessors in the same rooms as you doing what you're doing now. That's what makes the job worthwhile, isn't it, really, those moments? So I would say Monty as well. But but for me, um, it's it's maybe not, not so much an individual painting, but a room. So uh, we moved Monty into the dining room. And the dining room has become really the place in which we talk about Edward Austin Knight, his um, family, and the grouping of that family and his, his descendants. Because in that room, we have the table that Jane Austen would have dined at when she came and, and had family meals here. And that's just really evocative because you can sit in that room and think, you can imagine them having these sort of playful dinner discussions and and, uh, and teasing each other and spending time with each other. And we have quite a lot of evidence through Fanny Knight's journals that they would dine together quite often. Um, so when Edward and his family would stay here from Godmersham Park in Kent, when that was being renovated, they stayed here for quite a substantial amount of time. And Jane Austen and her sister and mother would come up here and dine and they would go down to the cottage and dine. And it's just really evocative. And being able to pull those those family portraits together in one room, you can kind of see they're looking at each other and that, that makes you even think more about those times that they spent together. And we do have um, a little portrait miniature of Fanny Knight. So that's really nice because, you know, she's the one that really wrote about that Um and she's now next to George Knight, so he's, he's another of Edward Austin's children. And so you can start to build a what would a family meal look like in this room and, and who was sitting with who and, and you know, what arguments were going on and, and all that sort of thing. And, and that's what I loved is getting the imagination going and getting visitors to really feel like they can picture that. So that was that was one of my favourite things that we did. And in terms of actual portraits, I'd say like it's in the same room as the Mary Robinson because that is um that's one of our key paintings. But we've in that room we've created a sort of narrative around women in the arts. So Mary Robinson was an actress as well as a writer. But one of the paintings we've got is of Georgina, the Duchess of Devonshire who is a fascinating character and you know there's a there's a Hollywood film about her so um people might be aware of her story but what was lovely is that we've got this pastel painting of her which I was slightly skeptical about whether it actually was her or not um but um I think I'm pretty convinced now because we also have a painting of a, another miniature um of Mariah Cosway who was an artist a female artist working at, at that time um and so we've been able to put that together um because Mariah Cosway also painted a portrait of Georgina, not the one we've got, um, but a really amazing, stunning, huge portrait that hangs at Chatsworth now of her as the fairy queen, um, which people might be familiar with. But we've, we've been able to kind of link those three pictures together and talk about, you know, there were women artists and they were good. They were really good. So <laughs> um, Mariah Cosway is one of them. Um, but we also have a painting next to that grouping, which is by Mary Beale. And Mary Beale was one of kind of known as the first professional 
female portrait artist. And sadly, her painting is of an unknown lady, as they often are. But it's an amazingly accomplished work, and it's beautiful. So those are the kind of goosebump moments when you when you can think about those women and what they were doing and how astonishing they were. And finally, I, I must add to that that the painting of Mary Beale has really stimulated a, a research area for me. Sorry, the painting mm-hmm. by Mary Beale, because um, when I was going through the catalogue that we've mentioned that Monty Knight uh, did of the paintings, um, it's all printed out, but sometimes there have been hand annotations added to certain entries. And uh, not all of the paintings that are in that catalogue and that were part of the Knight collection are still owned by Richard Knight and, and sort of housed in the house today. Some of them have been sold or there were different members of the family. And there's a painting in that catalogue of uh, Sir Richard May, who was a, uh, a, a chief baron of the Exchequer, I think, in um in the 18th century, and it doesn't have an artist attributed to it in in the printed entry, but a later hand has written next to it, Mrs. Beale, which seems to very strongly imply that someone has gone through and said, oh yes, that's the artist who painted that. And so it's amazing to think that there was once a painting painted not only by a women artist, um, but also by a women artist who we now also have in the collection. It's amazing to think that that's the case, and I would love to try and do some research to track down that painting and see if we were ever able to get it back to Chawton House for a short period of time or something. But, yeah, as, as I think this conversation is evidence, the connections are sort of uncanny, and more and more come out the more that you look into the collections and the story, which is really why it's so rewarding to work on. Oh, brilliant. That's been absolutely fascinating. Thank you very much for talking to me about the rehang today, Louisa and Emma. Thank Thank you so much. So that brings us to the end of another episode of the Chawton House podcast. Thank you to Emma Yandel and Louisa Carpenter for chatting to us about their work on the rehang project. We hope that you will be able to come and check it out for yourselves as the house has now reopened. Keep a lookout for further episodes of the Chawton House podcast and check out Chawton House's website and follow Chawton House on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook to keep updated on the latest events going on. Finally, thank you for this music. This is Guitalele's Happy Place by Kara Square, found on ccmixter.org. 